anthem, what a wonderful prayer, um, asking for God to come and heal our land. Um, we have been in a series, by the way, it's good to be back, good to see all of y'all. Um, I traveled up last uh, weekend to Kentucky uh, with our family, and we visited the Ark, and I would highly recommend it. I know many of y'all have been there as well, uh, but it was all that you could imagine and so much more. Um, just very impressive and a great opportunity for learning and to uh, appreciate Noah and his carpentry skills. Uh, he was a pretty remarkable guy. Well, we have been in a series, um, and we've been traveling, looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter. Um, that brought us in, I guess, late October, or late August into the first of Peter's two letters, First uh, Peter. Um, and I think, I think, don't hold me to this, but that we're wrapping up Peter's first letter today, and then next week we'll jump to uh, the second letter that he writes to the churches. Um, and we come to a passage today that I've been looking forward to for some uh, weeks, and uh, it's one of the more bizarre passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, Peter mentions some things here that are mentioned nowhere else in Scripture, and it raises some questions that nowhere else in Scripture would you consider those questions. Um, and so we'll take a look at this together today. This will be a teaching opportunity for us. I think we'll do some, uh, some real learning here uh, and discover some things about God's Word and some things about the afterlife and the place of the dead that perhaps uh, we had not heard before. So hope to pull all those things together for us today. Again, our text is 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Here we go, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. You may be seated. And you may have already noticed then I just went and saw that thing, and here we are talking about it, uh, God and His providence. Anyhow, so let's, uh, let's take a look at this. Let's dive into these verses together. Let's start at verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So what is Peter talking about? Well, this statement right here is kind of a summation statement, if you would, of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um, he says that Jesus suffered on the cross, that his suffering, he did this once, he doesn't need to perform this act of suffering on the cross again, it's a once and only one-time act. Uh, Peter says that he was the righteous, referring to Jesus, the righteous one Jesus, for the unrighteous, and unrighteous are you and I, people that have a sin problem that we can't fix. And so the righteous, perfect, spotless Lamb of God came down to earth, gave his life on the cross for your sins and mine, for the unrighteous. So Jesus um, gave his life for us, taking the punishment that should have been ours upon himself. Now Peter tells us why Jesus would do this. He writes still in verse 18, and so he might bring us to God. You see, the God that we serve, the God of heaven, we're told throughout the Bible, is a holy God. Uh, the angels in heaven sing the eternal song of heaven, and they don't sing that God is love, 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 even though he is a loving God. They don't sing that he's mercy, mercy, mercy. That's not the eternal song of heaven, even though God is 
merciful. The eternal song of heaven is holy, holy, holy. Because among all the attributes of who God is, the one that is the most prominent, the one that is the most premier amongst God's many attributes is his holiness. And because God is holy, he can't allow a sinner such as Gordon to walk into his presence. There must be some sort of cleansing that takes place over my soul, over my life, in order for me to walk safely into the presence of a holy God. And so this is what this verse is pointing to, that Jesus became our substitute. He became our sacrifice for sins, and that when we apply the blood of Jesus to our heart, I'm then able to walk into God's presence and feel safe and secure. It is, as Peter said earlier in this letter, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then closing out that verse, he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Now, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this should be really good news to you. Because what this verse tells us is that you don't have to perform some good works for God, that you don't have to jump through some religious hoops in order to get to God, that God's not looking for you to fill some sort of good works quota, and that he'll finally say, okay, you met the mark, now I'll let you into heaven. Friends, rather what this tells us is that Jesus has already paid the price for your sins and for mine, and that when we turn to him, when we appropriate what Jesus did on the cross to our own life by asking him to forgive us of our sins, by asking him to come into our life to be our Lord and Savior, then we can walk into the presence of this holy God and feel safe and secure there. Uh, And that's the meaning of the statement, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Jesus, by his death on the cross, enables us to do something that we could not do, for, to do, that he does for us, that we could not do for ourselves. All right, let's keep moving. End of verse 18. Peter writes, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. He's talking about how Jesus died on the cross, how he was put to death in the flesh. That's the topic matter of this whole verse. And then Peter reminds us that Jesus was made alive in the spirit. Some of your translations may say, by the Spirit. Either way, this part of the verse is indicating that Jesus' physical body uh, came to its last and breathed its last breath. He died physically, and then he was made back to life again. Now, the word that is translated there, spirit, at the very end of verse 18, do you all see that? I'm going to talk about that here for a second. So the word spirit at the very end of verse 18 comes the Greek from the Greek word pneuma. I don't know if I gave that to the guys at the back, but there's a slide for that. Maybe we'll find it and it'll pop up. The question is, should this word pneuma, uh, which translates spirit, be spirit with a capital S or spirit with a lowercase s? You say, Gordon, I don't get what the big deal is. What, what does it matter? Well, if it's a lowercase s, then we're talking about Jesus' spirit. We're talking about Jesus' soul. But if it is a capital S, then we're talking about uh, the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity here that is the one that made Jesus' physical body come back to life again. Well, the authors of the ESV version that we are reading here insert spirit with a little s, and I think they're wrong. You say, well, okay, I guess you don't agree with them. Well, in any case, I think they're wrong, and here's why I think that they're wrong. I think that this should be a capital S here referring to the Holy Spirit, and here's why. What part of Jesus died? Right? The verse says that he, he, uh, he died. And so what part of him died? Well, it was his body that died. It wasn't his spirit that died. We know that the spirit lives on forever, right? The spirit is the eternal part of us. So Jesus' spirit didn't die. So to say that he was made alive in the spirit, talking about his soul was made alive again, well, that doesn't make any sense. You follow me? 
All right, the thing that makes sense is that it was the Holy Spirit that they're referring to here that brought him, his physical body back to life. He was made alive, breath came back into the lungs of his physical body, and that was accomplished through the Holy Spirit. Um, if we rendered uh, the end of verse 18 with a little s, then that means that Jesus is saying not only did his physical body die, but so did his spirit. In other words, his spirit was made alive because his spirit had died as well. And again, that doesn't comport with the rest of Scripture. So um, here's the way I would think that this should be corrected, okay? This should say, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit with a capital S. And just so you know that I'm not out on some theological limb all by myself, the NIV translators put the, render this verse this way, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, render this verse this way, as well as does the King James Version. All of them present made alive in the Spirit with a capital S, just as you see it here. All right, moving right along. When we come out of verse 18 with the Spirit of God in view, with the Holy Spirit of God as the power that brought Jesus' physical body back to life, the Holy Spirit is who made him alive again, verse 19, in which or in whom Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits, that's with a little s, in prison. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now let's break that down. Now building off of verse 18, which is talking about the suffering, the death of Jesus, how he, was, he died physically and then he was raised back to life physically by the Holy Spirit. Um, it says, verse 19, that not only did the Holy Spirit serve as the power that raised Jesus' physical body back to life, but that same Holy Spirit also led Jesus to go to a prison somewhere, and while he was there, he was to proclaim or preach this message of the cross, which Peter has just been talking about, verse 18, to the people who were in that prison. Now, at first glance, that may not seem all that odd to us, because the thought of the Lord Jesus going to a prison and sharing the gospel with people who are in that prison, well, that sounds like something Jesus would have done during his earthly ministry, right? I mean, he's the kind of guy who would have done that. And so that doesn't seem all that strange to us. However, notice what Peter says. He describes the people who are in that prison as spirits. These are not living, breathing, flesh human beings. These are people who have died. And so he's saying there, Peter's indicating there, that Jesus goes and he proclaims this message of the cross to people who are in this prison. Um, these are not living, breathing human beings. These are people who have died. These are people who once were alive physically in the body, but now they are dead, physically dead, and in some sort of prison. Um, and it says that Jesus is there preaching to them or proclaiming to them the message of verse 18 about the cross. Now, all of this should begin to kind of some red flags flying up for us, right? Should begin to raise some questions. First, first of all, what in the world is Jesus doing preaching the message of the cross to people who are dead? <laughs> Did anybody else find that a little strange? I don't know that I've ever read that anywhere else in the New Testament, and you didn't because it appears here in Peter's letter. This is the only place where it appears. A second question is, where did he do this? I mean, where did he go to preach to dead people? And secondly, or thirdly, when did he do this? Uh, like after his ascension back to the Father? Did he do this during some Old Testament era? Is something that Peter's referring to here? I mean, when did this happen? And then the most important question being, does this raise the possibility that a person who is dead is given a second chance to respond to the gospel? I mean, if you read that verse, some denominations, some Christian denominations have taught that through the years based on this verse. And so I'll tackle those questions in order. First question is, 
where does Jesus do this? Where does he go to preach to spirits in prison, dead people who are in this prison? Well, I called Terry a couple of weeks ago. I knew that the sermon was coming up, and he had taught some material on the place of the dead back during COVID. If you were around during COVID around our church, he did this video teaching series that ran for about eight or ten weeks. And in the first of that video series, he taught on the place of the dead. And so I asked him, may I use your, have your permission to um, share some of that information? He graciously Um, responded yes and so if you want to learn the nitty-gritty of what I'm about ready to teach you um, he's in the middle of talking about uh, Israel and historical Israel and that's a three-week series that he's doing on Sunday mornings at 9 30 down in the events room at the end of that he's going to do a teaching series on the place of the dead so he's going to give you the full presentation on all this material I'm just giving you some of the highlights Um, here we go Where is it that Jesus went? Well, he went to a place, and I got the slide for you here, called a place of the dead, both before and after the ascension. This is the place of the dead, both before and after the ascension of Jesus. Let's start with the before. So the ascension is Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is already resurrected from the dead. He spends the days of Pentecost visiting with the disciples, preparing the church for his departure. And in Acts chapter 1, he ascends on up to the Father, okay? That's kind of where we're at. So, this is, so that line down the middle that says ascension, that's the stuff before Jesus ascended back to the Father. So um, let's talk about the first part of what you see there on that side. The first part is what is called Abraham's bosom or paradise. These are Old Testament references that appear in the New Testament prior to the ascension. And this is the place where believing Jews went while waiting for their Messiah. People like Abraham, people like Sarah, people like Deborah, people like Joseph, people like Isaac. People who had put their trust in the God of Abraham, their faith in the God of Abraham, that had made their sacrifices for sin at the temple, and were anticipating the day of the Messiah to come. So they were looking forward to the cross. We're looking back to the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. And so this is the place where those Old Testament people who had put their faith in the God of Abraham went they went to a place that the old testament calls and the new testament as well abraham's bosom or paradise so you've got dead jews physically dead jews in this holding tank called abraham's bosom and so that's where they went Uh, there's a second place that's on your uh on this slide there and it shows that everybody else that did not put their faith in the god of abraham they went to a place that the bible calls hades hades was the holding plant holding place or holding tank for unrighteous humans so human beings that died before Jesus's suffering and death on the cross that did not put their faith in the God of Abraham did not make sacrifices for sins those human beings went to a place called Hades the Bible calls Hades the second place for the unrighteous was a place called the abyss and this was a place that was reserved for fallen angels fallen angels from the Old Testament time and before and beyond they, uh, or what we would call demons, went to a place called the abyss. That was their holding tank. And then a final place, a third place, is called Tartarus. Now, the people who are in this abode, and this becomes important to the text that we're going to look at today, the people who are in this particular place called Tartarus are a very specific group of people. These are fallen angels or demons who look down at the daughters of men during just before the time or during the time of Noah just before he would build the ark and thought you know what those are some good looking gals down there and I would like to go and I would like to start my own family with some of them and so these fallen angels these demons we'll read this here in just a second Genesis chapter 6 it tells the story of these folks came down to the earth or came to the earth and they 
had relations with women of the earth, and they produced children with them, and those children are what the Bible refers to as the Nephilim. You say, Gordon, did they teach you all this while you were up there in Kentucky? No, I didn't hear any of this stuff. But anyhow, it is in the Bible. We're going to read it. Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. So this is all the stuff leading up to Noah getting ready to build the ark. Okay, here we go. Verse 1, when man became, began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, verse 2, the sons of God, the fallen angels, so that re- reference there, sons of God, some theologians believe these are referring to the children of Seth, others believe that these are referring to uh, spiritual beings that inhab- took, on, took on physical uh, presence and that came to the earth. I think that they were spiritual beings that took on physical presence. I think they were fallen angels. So the sons of God, the fallen angels that saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and so they took as their wives any that they chose. Verse 4, the Nephilim, that's what they were called. The word Nephilim literally translates giants. The giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So the children that were the result of these fallen angels um, having relations with the daughters of men resulted in this race of giants that was here on the earth. I don't know how many of them there were, but there was this race of giants that was here on the earth. And then look at what happens to the state of humanity after these fallen angels right on the heels of these fallen angels, these demons who come to earth and begin to populate the earth with their own children. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man. Verse 7. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. End of verse 7. For I am sorry that I have made them. Again, you read starting in verse 5, it looks like the depravity of humanity has just gone to the very bottom. And all of this right on the heels of these Nephilim being uh, born into the world. Now skip back to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, in which, this is Peter talking here, in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Peter identifies right there in those verses who Jesus went to proclaim the gospel to. He's telling them about the victory of the cross. He's telling them about verse 18, that the righteous gave himself for the unrighteous. And he's proclaiming this message. So Peter... Peter identifies who Jesus is preaching to in this place of the dead. These are demonic beings who scoffed at the building of the ark and the sign that it represented of God's coming judgment. These were perhaps also the Nephilim, children of, the, of these fallen angels as well. In fact, Peter mentions, he points out this very group of people in his next letter, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Let's take a look at that. So in his next letter, he talks about this. He talks about final hell and judgment, and he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the final judgment. And then he goes on to say, what, what makes you think, if God would do that to the angels that were disobedient, what makes you think he wouldn't do that to us? What's interesting in that verse, in chapter 2 and verse 4, is that the word that translates hell in our English actually comes from the Greek word Tartarus. 
Some of you have in your study Bibles, it'll have a little text note down at the bottom of the page, and it'll say, in Greek, Tartarus. It actually is the word Tartaru, which is just a declension of the root word Tartarus. He's referring there to these fallen angels who are in this place of the dead, this abode of the dead, called Tartarus. Um, So back to our slide. Let's take a look at our slide again real quick. I hope I haven't lost you. I really hope I haven't lost you. We've gone around the world back again, haven't we? So the place that Jesus went, in my opinion, was Tartarus. It was the place of the dead where there were spirits in prison, specifically that part of hell reserved for, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, people in the days of Noah while the ark was being built or being prepared. And so these were fallen angels who bore children in the days of Noah and contributed to the corruption of society and perhaps the children of those fallen angels as well, the Nephilim, who were in this particular part of hell. This is where I, I think Jesus went. And the message that he declared to them, verse 18, again, all this is right there in the context. He was declaring to them about the cross. He was declaring them about how the righteous had given his life for the unrighteous. Now, I could be completely wrong. <laughs> I, could, I could be really, really wrong. Um, what's interesting is when you look at this text and you read, and I went to the library uh, last, maybe two weeks ago, and I was sitting in the library, not our public library, but the, but the school's library, and you know, volumes and volumes and volumes of commentaries, and I got them all off the shelf and made a big giant mess. And I was reading through all of what the commentaries had to say on this particular passage of Scripture, and there are about as many opinions on this passage of Scripture as there are theologians to give them. I mean, there is just, there is no, uh, no sense. Uh, there are people who think these were human beings, like I said, who were from the land, from the line of Seth. There are other people who think this happened uh, during the Old Testament age that Jesus actually came and sort of inhabited Noah somehow. I'm not sure how that worked, but anyhow, it was Jesus who was actually preaching in the days of Noah to these people. I don't know. It's all across the board um, trying to figure out what goes on here. So my, my caution is not to be too dogmatic about this passage. Can we agree there? <laughs> okay. Uh, there are, like I said, there's about as many opinions as there are people to give them. And so I'm just going to leave it up to you all to decide what you think this passage is, is referring to. Um, back to our illustration. Let's take a look at the place of the dead again. So let's take a look at that slide. Almost done here. So that's how the place of the dead was arranged before the ascension of Christ. What about after? Well, after his ascension, Jesus arranges things or rearranges things so that the folks in the holding tank of Abraham's bosom or in paradise will now be transferred to a new place that you and I call heaven. Jesus talks about this. John chapter 14 and verse 1. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, uh, or maybe I'm already ahead of myself in verse 2. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Friends, when Jesus ascended up to the Father, he went to prepare a place for us. Back to our slide again. And that's the place that you and I know of as heaven. I think sometimes, and this happened to me too as I was growing up and coming along and learning different theology and learning the Bible, we think of heaven the same as it is now 
as it was prior to the ascension. And that is not the view that we get from Scripture. Scripture talks about a difference, that Jesus goes to prepare a new place for you and I. And again, that's the place that you and I know of as heaven. And uh, the place of the dead in Abraham's bosom or paradise is where those who were there uh, are now resting in heaven. Uh, And the rest go to Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna is at the final judgment it will, and will be placed into the lake of fire. Uh, we'll, we're going to look at that here in just a little bit. This is how Jesus could tell the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Did you ever wonder about that? I did. How could Jesus, who the Apostles' Creed says descended into hell, go to a place that I would think of as heaven? How could he be in two places at the same time? Because he was in the place of the dead, he visited Tartarus while he was there, and he also visited paradise, or what we think of as Abraham's bosom. Last question, when did this happen? Well, I've already kind of given you a hint as to when this happened. Um, It happened between the time when Jesus bowed his head and breathed his last on the cross and Easter Sunday morning. That's when it happened. While Jesus' body was laying in the tomb, his spirit or his soul, the non-physical part of him, went to the place of the dead. And as the Apostles' Creed declares, Jesus descended into hell. And as Peter teaches us, he preached to those spirits in prison. He preached to the spirits in Tartarus, as well as made a visit through paradise. We learn that from his statement on the cross. Let me sum all this up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. He doesn't have to do it again. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, you and I. And why did he do this? To bring us to God. Something we couldn't accomplish on our own. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 19. And by this same spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in Tartarus, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. All right, well, that is our text for today. That is our treatment of this. And so that means it's time for us to get along down the road and ask the question that you probably didn't get to hear last week. I don't think Jim asked that question. But anyhow, so you're, you're eager for it, right? All right. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, as I've been uh, sharing some of this and the thought of Jesus going to the place of the dead and proclaiming, this is what Peter says, and proclaiming uh, to them this message of the cross, it's kind of odd. All this is kind of odd. But maybe as we've been talking about this, you begin to think to yourself, well, is the Bible suggesting here that there's some sort of second chance, perhaps, for people who have gone on and left this life but now are in the afterlife? Is, there some sort, is the Bible indicating that there's some sort of second chance after your chance here on earth for people who have died and gone to hell? Is that what Peter is indicating? I mean, we have Jesus proclaiming the message of the cross to people in hell. Why in the world would he do that? Unless there was some sort of second chance, perhaps. I mean, was he just going down there to rub it in? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, Was he going down there because um, he wanted to take a victory lap 
over everybody that was in hell to say, hey, look, you should have looked to me. Uh, why would he do this? Well, that's a great question, and I must admit that the prospect, at least the prospect, of all of this sounds great. The idea that hell is not a finality, the idea that, that if somebody goes to hell that there is some sort of opportunity for them to repent and find Jesus, I mean, that sounds kind of compassionate, right? Our God's compassionate. It sounds merciful. Our God is merciful. Well, there are a growing number of theologians that are teaching that everyone will eventually, everyone will eventually, even if it has to be in the afterlife, make it to heaven. And that is becoming a popular teaching in the churches today and in seminaries today. The problem is, outside of this inconclusive, would we agree, passage of Scripture, that's not taught anywhere else in the Bible. Flip over with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I, I know I'm throwing a lot at you today, and I'm going to throw even some more stuff at you today, but just hang in there with me. We're, we're going to wrap it up here in a little bit. Luke chapter 16, verse 26. Jesus is telling the story of two fellows who were alive here on the earth. They died, and they ended up in the place of the dead. They end up in the afterlife. One of the fellows is a rich man. Jesus is not indicating that people who have wealth don't go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Not at all. Not even close. Abraham's in in heaven. Abraham had a lot of money. David is in heaven. David had a lot of money. So this has, not, has nothing to do with him being rich. So the rich man, and then there's a poor man, and the poor man's name is Lazarus. The poor man used to eat at the crumbs from Lazarus, I'm sorry, from the rich man's table while they were here on the earth. The poor man just didn't pay him any mind at all, didn't care about anybody but himself. And so these two guys are in the afterlife, and the rich man is in Hades, and is experiencing fire and torment and he's crying out across the expanse whatever that expanse is he's crying out across the expanse to abraham's bosom where lazarus the poor man is at and he's begging him for mercy father abraham standing next to lazarus in abraham's bosom or paradise says hey look uh here's the deal and so here's what abraham tells us and this is jesus relaying this story verse 26 luke 16 and beside all this, Abraham says, between us here at Abraham's bosom and you in Hades, a great chasm has been, what's the word? Fixed. In order that, here's the purpose of it, so that, the, so that those who would like to pass from here to you may not be able, and none on your side can cross from where you are to us. In other words, Abraham's saying, even if we wanted to come and show you mercy, even if we wanted to come and show you compassion, even if we wanted to come and dip our finger in the, some water and just put a drop of cool water on your tongue just to give you a moment of relief from the agony that this man is experiencing, even if we wanted to do that, we could not. And even if someone on your side was feeling repentant and was ready to come to faith in Jesus, they could not either. Why? Because this chasm has, that exists between your side and ours is too great of a gulf for anyone to be able to surmount. Now, granted, this is a description of the afterlife before the ascension, right? Jesus is describing the afterlife before the ascension. Nevertheless, the principle exists that once you leave this life, once you take your last breath, there are no second chances. And that is the point of the story. 
that Jesus is telling. I mean, the rich man even says, well, if you can't help me, please go and just tell my family. Tell my uncles and my children and my cousins. Tell them about this place and what they need to do to not end up in this place. Because I don't want anybody else to experience what I'm experiencing in this place. And Abraham responds, hey, look. Or actually, Jesus responds at the end of the story. Even if a dead man were to be raised back to life, which Jesus was about to do in a couple of days, you would still wouldn't believe the fact is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. The writer of Hebrews says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Look over at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And get this, they will be tormented for how long? forever and ever, day and night, forever and ever. And this is the witness of Scripture. You say, but, G but Gordon, uh, you know, the, the writer of, of Revelation is talking about the devil being thrown into this place. Well, what, about, what about you and I? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated, seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This is the end of time. All things have come to a close, and the final judgment seat before Jesus. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. You want your name written in there. You get your name written in there because you did what 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, last verse. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, here's what happens. He was thrown into where? Into the lake of fire. And what happens in the lake of fire? Day and night, forever and ever. Um. You know, I was eight years old. I, I've shared this story with y'all before. I was eight years old, and it, it be, I, I realized what I'm, I didn't know about Tartarus and all these other sorts of things, but I knew that there was a place called hell, and I knew that there was a place called heaven, and I knew that the holy God of the universe, that if I had to stand before him, I was not going to feel safe in his presence. And so when I was eight years old, I remember coming to my dad and saying, hey, I, I need to, we need to fix this. I need Jesus in my life. I'm ready to give my life to him. And so I remember kneeling down at my bedside with my dad at eight years of age, and he led me in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I invited him into my heart. I asked him to forgive me of my sins. And all the fear that I was feeling right up to that moment simply went away. You know, some folks are planning to get to Jesus when they come to the end of their lives. In other words, they plan to lie in a hospital bed somewhere they know that the end is in view, and they plan to, in the final moments of their life, to finally ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins. We call that an 11th hour conversion. I'll admit that strategy, it can work. It can work, provided that you know that it's coming and you have the opportunity to pray and ask Jesus into your life, and Jesus will forgive you. Even in the 11th hour, even in your final breath, Jesus will forgive you. 
I've known plenty of folks who have prayed to receive Christ at the end of their life. I have personally prayed with some of those folks to receive Jesus at the end of their life. And I'm happy to do it. It is not my wish that anybody would go to hell. And I know it is not your wish either. The problem with 11-hour conversions is that sometimes people die at 10.30. You know, the Boy Scouts have a saying, always be prepared. Friends, when it comes to where you and I will spend eternity, we need to be prepared. This is not an issue to put off for some later date. And so this morning in closing, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if there is doubt in your mind about where you will spend eternity, I would like to help you resolve that today. In just a moment, I'm going to lead, you, lead us in a prayer, and I would like for you to pray these words after me. To pray, I'll pray out loud. You just pray silently, quietly, where you're seated, with your eyes closed. We're not going to hang with me for just a moment. But with your eyes closed, you can pray where you're seated. God hears your prayers. You don't have to say them out loud. And in this praying this morning, you are inviting Jesus to become your Lord and your Savior, just like I did when I was eight years old, praying with my dad. And praying this prayer, you're putting your trust, your total trust for eternity in what Jesus accomplished on the cross on your behalf, not in your good works, not in being a good person, but in what Jesus did on the cross. Friends, there is no more important decision that you will ever make than the one to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And so I encourage you this morning, I implore you this morning, that if there is doubt in your mind, that you pray this prayer with me. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, I stand before you today a sinner condemned. I know that I have a sin problem that I cannot fix. I know, Jesus, that you are the way to heaven, the one and the only way. And so, Jesus, I come in this moment to put my faith in you, to put my trust for eternity in you. Come into my heart. Forgive me of all my sins. Cleanse me. That I might stand in the presence of a holy God, 